So, eve of the Janmashtami itself, we gathered. Nice to be with all of you. And in tomorrow we will be fasting until midnight. Krishna appeared at midnight. Must be some significance to that, huh? <laughs> so, um, we'll talk about that and all tomorrow. And, um, of course, we'll be offering all types of wonderful things to the deity all day long. And uh, then the next day is happens to be the day that Prabhupada appeared in the world, so we commemorate that. It's packed kind of the two days of fasting and feasting and and uh, Harikata and so on, Kirtan. So I'm glad that uh, I spent this whole ten days or so with most of you and... Um, are there any questions tonight? Yes. Uh, I have a couple questions about uh, mental images of the deity. Um, I find it impossible to read Gobi books or listen to your lectures without constructing mental pictures. Uh, what Mahatma looks like, what Nityananda looks like, how they act, what not, you know, the whole picture. Um, and even artists, when, we, when we're singing, it's a whole visual description. Yeah. So it seems even to be engaged in artists, we're required to use imagination, imagine capacity. Uh, so my question is, first of all, how far can we go with that without being engaged in like a formal Islam? Uh, and then I guess secondly, um, I can construct a picture of Mahaprabhu in my mind, but I haven't actually been to Nadia. But other people have. Um, and those devotees might not paint or make drawings or carve sculptures. So I'm wondering, do the pictures we construct uh, with the imagination, do those have, what's the relative value? Does, does that have, can we fill the gaps, I guess? Mm-hmm. There is um, a formal process, if you will, that some devotees engage in um, in the name of Smarnam and and it's common in some sects of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Um, And it, it involves um, reconstructing with the mind, if you will, uh, scenes, forms of the Lord and so forth, scenes of the pastimes, as they've been described and experienced by, by others. Hmm? Um, there's descriptions in the Bhagavatam, for example, of these... Uh, transcendental events and um, um, the Arctic as you mentioned is like a window still picture into the motion picture of Krishna Leela or Gaur Leela depending on the deity and we sing a song that corresponds with it and um, just like we're talking about the birth of Krishna, so we'll finish talking about the birth of Krishna, but we don't. It's not over because there's a life of Krishna. <laughs> so we start talking about the Leela. So there's a picture, a moment, if you will, a still picture and the motion picture of Krishna Leela to meditate upon, and it's meditated upon by by fixing the mind on the descriptions that have been given by great saints and so forth who envisioned that in their heart of hearts, and. Um, and, and and so some schools will emphasize that. Other schools will emphasize more do kirtan without necessarily such an, a mental exercise. And these visions will come in your own heart as it's cleansed and so forth. And this is kind of a react. This kind of emphasis, in one sense, is kind of a reaction to an abuse of the the former 
practice wherein um, it was sometimes uh, thought that without that um, there would be no access to the Leela and you had to get it from a certain person and along with other uh, esoteric information and tips and and so on and so forth and that would be sold or marketed so to speak to to make a make a living and people who were less than qualified to really engage in that um, were then um, given that as a sadhana and the whole thing kind of deteriorated into just imagination hmm? imagination is something that should be captured for Krishna so there's a place for it hmm? we sh- we, so there's no harm in imagining if you will the that which has already been experienced and passed down a semblance of that and and so forth um, <clears throat> but we should see that as a result of that there's there's actual absorption and change coming about um, and so there's no uh, harm in that some people will be more inclined towards that you know artistic people who are imaginative and creative and so forth may be more inclined towards that and they may construct then you know more readily or easily in their minds the scene as it's been described in this song or that song and um, meditate on it in a way and, and that's uh, not uh, not harmful, uh, um, but it doesn't necessarily constitute. It's not. I guess what I want to say is it's not the same as a sporty hmm? means up like a manifestation in the heart where the picture comes on the heart on the mind, captures the mind as a result of absorption and so forth. Without the effort of constructing it in the mind, and so if we misconstrue the two, then that in history of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, this has kind of happened, where the imagination was kind of like a method to try to control the mind, absorb the mind, and fix the mind, um, um, is engaged in, and it then becomes synonymous in the minds of some with that experience but then those who are doing it we don't see other qualities in them that should be there if they're having such a high experience and it's a very high thing hmm? to have the Leela manifest in the heart and the mind and uh, experience that even a glimpse of that that's very that's uh, very um, well auspicious good sign it's evidence you're, you're doing something right meanwhile anybody can even without practicing, could construct something in their mind about Krishna Leela from reading about it. And, and so the two are not the same. Hmm? At the same time, the one which is kind of a, a practice and so forth that that may help some, hmm? is not essential, may not be very easy to do for others. Hmm? Others may be able to hear the name hmm? and, and, and they do better just hearing and not thinking about anything. Hmm. Others may need to construct something in their mind, and Manat Krishna Nivesha, somehow or other, Rupa Goswami says, try to control the mind and fix the mind on Krishna. So, device like that um, may be useful, may, may be helpful, but we should understand it in perspective. Basically, like the Arctic song we're playing for Gornit, singing for the Gornitai, it's a meditation on, on a scene. So, yes, it's a... It's a kind of a, we say, mantra mai upasana. So there's song or mantra that depicts a particular scene. This is a famous scene in, in Gorlila when all the associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu were in the house of Srivastaka where they're performing kirtan. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu suddenly goes and stands on the altar himself and starts revealing to everybody in the kirtan, he's Krishna and you're this associate, and this one is that associate, and so forth, and performing the arctic for him. Um, the song we sing is written by Bhakti Vinod Thakur, and it, it kind of follows a song by Narahari, who wrote the, 
the book you were asking about, um, Bhakti Ratnakar. Again, it might be a different Narahari, I'd have to look that up. But, uh, the, one of the Parshadas of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Narahari. Um, and so, so anyway, that, that uh, Bhakti Vinod Thakur has offered that, that Leela's here. You know, you take Brahma Samhita, there are also Nam, you know, what is it, uh, Chintamani, Prakara Sadhma, so this is for Mantra Mayu Upasana. Hmm? Mantra Mayu Upasana means that, that it's a, Upasana means to worship, so with Mantra Mayu, with like the fullness of the mantra, so there's an implication of the mantra or the verse that depicts, as I say, a still moment in the Leela. The idea is if you become fixed on that, then it starts to move after time. It's called Swarasiki. Then it's going, it moves to the, it plays itself out. It's going from one to the other, flowing in the heart, and so forth. So we do Mantra Mayupasana in this way, in relation to the Arctic with Kirtan. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a bad thing to try to fix your mind on Krishna. But at the same time, in any way, and to, and to use some imagination when you come to bhava bhakti, the bhava bhakti is using imagination, but it's a, but the condition of the mind, which imagination is a function of, is completely saturated with bhava, so it's a special kind of, it's, it's real. In other words, his imagination, her imagination is real. It, they actually participate in the leela, come back, witness it, come back, and so forth. So prior to that, it will be more or less a mental um, exercise, but it's not a bad thing to exercise our mind. We just have to stay in the parameters. Of, we can't imagine all kinds of things happening that don't happen within the context of rasa. Hmm? You know, we're not, whatever. Leela <laughs> uh, uh, has some form, some structure, and within that, of course, it has some freedom also. Therefore, one has to be acquainted with the tattva, so his imagination isn't taking him outside of of what um, real experiences of the leela, descriptions of them, and so forth, constitute. So that would be one kind of um, caution. Otherwise, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it, it may be may good for some, and it may be helpful. Um, you may also do uh, doing research on Krishna Leela, the d- details of Krishna Leela is also kind of a entry level kind of type of smarnam as an overt exercise of the mind, as opposed to as I say chanting in such a way that that the mind is arrested by the chanting and the rupa form of the Lord's qualities Leelas begin to, to manifest there. Spontaneously, then you know you're doing something right. It's not a it's not an effort to control the mind. And chanting, of course, is the main limb of bhakti in um, in kali yuga. And while smarnam is very central to rag bhakti, still kirtan uh, presides. And so, as I've said before. Our main focus should be to try to chant offenselessly. Then again, the the main cause of offensive chanting is not paying attention, right? And so, if while chanting you're, to, in order to avoid not paying attention, you focus the mind on on Krishna, Krishna Leela, construct something like you're talking about, and that's maybe useful. Mm-hmm. It's not harmful. Uh You'll find the other. You'll find that that, that the, the mind becomes arrested in a way that you could not possibly arrest it by exercising it, you know, overtly and trying to 
control it. But even before bhav, then it, it, it is, if you if you become absorbed, hmm, then um, you will find that the mind doesn't need to construct. Hmm. Uh, that kind of construction that you're talking about is an effort to 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 control the mind, to absorb the mind. Hmm. Sometimes you will get absorbed hmm, by doing anything. Here is a good opportunity. We keep everybody pretty busy, usually, and so then sometimes they just all of a sudden they the mind leaves them alone. It's arrested, and and they begin to feel themselves. They feel blissful, and they think, well, this is really where I want to be, and and they they get ecstasy, which means beyond the senses, which means beyond the mind, literally. Experience beyond these these faculties, and that's of course very um, confirming. Feels like you got some mercy or something like that. Never experience never equals the effort that you've you've put in, and so that's what we want. We want to be absorbed, so to speak, so that um, then you actually see Krishna. At least you see everything in relation to Krishna. Everything becomes exciting. Every Aspect of, for example, what, what do we do here and so forth, rather than I should be doing it calculated. And to, but that's a stage, and that's that's important. Uh, and there may be different ways to to uh, to proceed in that stage. What you're talking about is certainly um, valid and useful for some types of minds. <laughs> so, another question. Yeah. Can being situated in our spiritual practice help us to receive guidance and understand what activities in the material realm, such as occupation and service, are more congruent with our natural orientation? Can being situated in in our spiritual practice reveal how I might be best um, uh, um, suited to proceed in life in general? Or assist, yeah. Or assist who? Assist how I might. Doesn't indicate, like, not like reveal entirely everything, but would help one. Assist me. Uh huh. Well, we talked uh, the other morning a little bit about the idea that material well being follows spiritual well being. So to attend to your spiritual necessity. Um, should be the priority, and um, from there, um, the picture of how to proceed materially, I think, will be much clearer. And to go the other way around, of course, is very backwards. That idea of, like I was saying, you know, I got to just put one more thing in place, and then everything's going to be, I'm ready to go. You know, that one thing will always be something else. Um, Materially, so better to. Um, if the question is, should I just absorb myself in spiritual practice and figure that then I'll know where to go from there, or should I, you know, get everything materially set up and then I'll practice? So if the question is like that, then the former is a better way to go, in my opinion. And what's the loss anyway? So even if you. Not that successful materially. Uh, if you're eating, you've got a roof over your head. That's the problem. So, yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to... Um, with It sounds like the question is that I have some trepidation about absorbing myself in spiritual life. I may then neglect something or I may not... Um, um, Uh, get the training I need or something to proceed materially. and um, I think that, like here, for example, if someone comes here and wants to get absorbed in spiritual life, then you know I may say any number of things to those people. I may say, you sit here and stay here. Hmm? The other person may say, you go to school. You should get a job. Hmm? You should, uh, whatever. <laughs> you should get married. You know, so it's a... There's different people, different situations. So with good guidance, which is central to spiritual practice, 
then we'll get uh, each in individual person will get advice because a good guide is going to take into consideration the fact that if we are materially out of balance, it's going to inhibit our practice. Mm-hmm. If you're too hungry, then you know at least in the beginning, you're just going to be difficult to practice. We'll see how we all do tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, so there's a there's a place for that. So wise uh, guidance has to take the whole picture into consideration how you should proceed spiritually. So what that means, you know, how, should I just absorb myself in spiritual life and will my material, you know, what I should do materially all come from that? Yeah, in a sense, but then what does it mean to absorb ourselves in, in spiritual life? We should have good guidance, we should get, get counsel. Like people come here, they spend, I always ask everybody, why don't you spend some time here, you know, spend, and then uh, we'll, you know, we can evaluate your situation, how you may best be able to proceed along these these lines, and then then the response will be different for different people. So I think good spiritual guidance, which is central to spiritual practice, um, involves um, the fact that different people will be given different instructions, and that may be the best thing for somebody to do spiritually, to go away. Don't come back here. That might be also the best thing you could tell somebody. If they if they come here with the wrong attitude and so forth, you might say, the best thing you can do is leave. I mean, that's pretty extreme, but um, um, so different different advices for different persons. There has to be some balance between our material and spiritual life. That's the whole principle kind of of the Varnashram, but he you know, in an essential sense, to be psychologically balanced so that your physiological, psychological needs are met within reason so that they're not, like, gnawing at you and you can't concentrate on on um, the more important thing of your spiritual life. So, I don't know if that's helpful. But... The perfect answer, says the asker. Oh, well... <laughs> Perfect questions, perfect answers. <laughs> what else? Yes? Gosh, um, maybe this is a little bit off-center, but several times in these days you've mentioned Mahavishnu and how he always sleeps. What, is he in yoga nidra, or, is, or why is he sleep? Does he ever get up? and <laughs> Does he do anything, or, or is he just there, and, and his job is just to emanate universes? <laughs> so it's yoga nidra. It's called it's uh, yeah sleeping yoga yoga nidra, and he, he kind of dreams the world, so to speak. Um, and in the big temples of Mahavishnu in South India, like Padmanabhichitra and Janardhana and so forth, uh, these uh, Sri Rangam. I haven't been to Sri Rangam, but I think the same. Like I say, they have these 22, 24 foot deities. And they're actually um, anyway. They're uh, yeah. They're light, usually like you know lying down in Ananta Sesha on the bed of Ananta serpent bed with the hoods like an umbrella. And so this is a manifestation of Ram, always with Vishnu protecting him, holding him up like the elder brother. That is Daoji. Hmm? Yeah. Krishna's Ramanuja, the younger son, Anuja, who is Anu after Ja, born after Ram, just a few days after. Um, discussing. So, what does he do, Mahavishnu? Well, the world's pretty big thing, <laughs> you know. He manifests the world, he enters into every, uh, every universe, every soul, every atom, supports it. He's the witness. Nothing that he, he misses, you know, his his uh, escapes his, his his vision. He sees the witness. So the idea of the vision, Vishnu means all pervading. It's a good idea to meditate on because hmm? we all have secrets, but there's nothing you can hide. Is the fact this place where Bhagavatam was spoken by Sutta Goswami to? 
the sages is called Naimisharanya, Naimisha. It means uh, it's the forest where there's no blinking. It means, literally. It said that Vishnu doesn't blink. It means he sees everything. There's, there's nothing. You know, if you blink, you don't miss much, but he doesn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eyes of God are everywhere and so forth. So, um, the meditation on Vishnu is something. Sridharanish wrote a beautiful commentary on the Rig Mantra, Rig Veda Mantra, Om Tad Vishnu Paramam Param Sada Pashanti Yatsuraya. Mm-hmm. Um, the eye of Vishnu. Uh, it's very compelling, hmm? worth worth studying, and uh, gives you a comforting sense because the witness, the seer of all, is also very affectionate and kind. It's not that Vishnu has no affection. It's said that for for the sake of his own joy, which is the only purpose, if you can call it that, that he's existing, the one becomes many. So we are the many. Hmm? And the many are small, and he's big. And his leela is a leela in relation to the Maya Shakti, which is just a reality. We don't have to ask why. It just—it's a reality. We know it's a reality. We know that we're experiencing it. Right? That there's a bewildering kind of influence. People can be an illusion. We find ourselves from the Vedanta perspective in illusion in terms of being consciousness but identified with matter so so this anyway this this particular shakti hmm, that's uh, presided over by Mahavishnu when we take the Swarup shakti in a general sense she's provided over by Radha if we divide her into her elemental constituents Ladini bliss Samvit knowing Sandini uh, existence, this is like super-existence compared to Sat, Chit, and Ananda. Sat, Chit, and Ananda is kind of like you be, you exist, you are blissful, but the Leela is manifesting in a kind of existence, a kind of knowing, and a kind of ecstasy that are these like, as I was saying the other day, these like nuclear solar explosions in the life of the Absolute. So, um, anyway, those constituents are presided over by Bliss, Radha, knowing uh, Vasudev Krishna and Sandini, the existential uh, aspect, manifesting of the Dham, the, the, the place of Leela, and so forth. That's uh, uh, Balram. So, uh, so over the Maya Shakti, then this Mahavishnu is presiding. Maya Tadamidam Saivam Jagat Avyaktumuttina. Maya Lakshina Prakriti Suyate Sacharatram, all these statements in the Gita. Krishna's speaking them, but he's saying it, but it's his Mahavishnu aspect of him is actually doing that if we trace it out. If you all read all that, you understand Krishna must be the source of Mahavishnu because he says, I do this, I do that. Hmm? In my manifestation as Vishnu, hmm? in relation to the world. So, um, and so the one becomes many. Hmm? And, it, and this becoming is like an eternal present. It's not happening in time. None of these events are. That's why Vishnu is and his and the manifestation of the worlds and their becoming unmanifest. It's really not a creation. According to Vedanta, everything exists. Everything that exists will always exist. Whatever doesn't exist will never exist. So all the parts all the players, everything's here. Like I say, we have to get used to one another because nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's leaving. Hmm? And so, um, the world is manifest, becomes unmanifest, and this is compared to the inhalation and the exhalation of Vishnu, which means there's no beginning to that. God has no beginning. So, And each exhalation, if you will, is... Involves the manifestation of so many souls, the one becoming many. The one becomes many, the many again come back to the one. That's called susupti, deep sleep. There's no psychic or physical action taking place when the world is again manifest, the psychic dimension, 
and the physical dimension that are the particulars of which are determined by karma, again manifest and give vent or facility for the, each jiva soul to express itself in terms of its previous reactions. And so, so in, a, in a sense, Vishnu breathes out the world and the many with a great you know, idea in mind. Hmm? One, out of joy, the one becomes many. But because the many are small, it becomes a problem that the one, uh, it becomes a problem for them that's not a problem for the one. One presides over material nature, over Maya Shakti. The others are small, like with the imprint of the one, but so they have will, and, and this is a valuable thing, freedom to, to choose. Uh, but it's relative. They cannot choose something that the one doesn't sanction, but anyway, they're a unit of will, and but they're small, so in the face of the vastness of material nature, they become overwhelmed by that. Well, that's a problem. So, avatara then, Mahavishnu, avatars, he descends in so many forms, manifest the Veda and so forth. It's all out of the background, it's all compassion. I manifest the many, they're small, they're in trouble. So, Vishnu is like the compassionate, this is his Leela. So, he reaches out to the, to the jivas in general, and to those jivas who are sadhakas, who are have progressed to a certain point, they can fully take advantage of that particular avatar. And then he, then those, those, then that's the, 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 the one becoming many, that's the when the many, or any one of the many, reach their fullest uh, potential. Then they experience the full joy that they're um, manifest out of and for the, if you will, purpose of. Hmm? So this is the idea. It's going round and round again and again. So this is his his leela. Hmm? Now he also, you know, he has different uh, manifestations of Vishnu in 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 the ocean of milk, as it's described, and, and so forth. He has some leelas too. There's a famous leela in the Bhagavatam where Mahavishnu steals the sons of a Brahmin. There's a Brahmin he. He, he has a son, and the son disappears. So he has another one that disappears. Like, I don't know, six, eight sons, they disappear. And he's thinking, like, I'm a Brahmin, and I strictly follow all the uh, spiritual guidelines and so forth. And the Kshatriyas, the administrators, and so they're supposed to protect people like me. Why is this happening? Hmm? So Arjun comes, one of the big, you know, protectors, and he says, I'll raise all of this. You know, I'll find uh, what's happening here. And he goes everywhere and he can't find the, the sons. And, he, and he, he says, if I can't find them, then I'll take my own life. I'm that much a protector of those who um, you know, adhere to the, to the spiritual guidelines and so forth. That's what I'm for. He can't find them, so he's going to commit suicide. So Krishna steps in and says, hold on, you know, I'm not going to let you do that. Come with me. And they go to the Vishnu Loka. Hmm. And they're all the sons. And Vishnu says, "Yes, I did. I wanted to get your darshan. You, Krishna and Arjun, personally, you're performing wonderful deeds on earth. I wanted to see you up close, and and I'm fascinated by this. And so, you know, he has a couple things he does up there. <laughs> um, but uh, generally, the idea is yes, sleeping, which means that that manifestation of Bhagwan." really the Paramatma feature, is not, um, uh, the you know, he breathes out the world and, you know, people don't listen, it becomes a problem. So he breathes it back in, goes to sleep, tried that, and, you know, then he, you know, wakes up and, and manifests it again. Sometimes it's described as a dreaming, sometimes it's the breath and so forth. The breath idea again being, well, as long as you're alive, you've got to breathe, so... Vishnu is always alive, so this world is going and coming, coming and going again and again and again and again, without any beginning. But our participation in it can end. Hmm? So while we manifest through the Mahavishnu, we don't have to stay within his leela. Hmm? Hmm? We can come out. So 
he's basically seen like as a manifestation of the compassion of the of, uh, of the Godhead and uh, the witness to all the activities. Nothing unknown by him, and so accordingly, he gives the sanction of material nature to respond. Material nature really responds to how we interact with her, and. She's not, you know, it's, that's really like law. Like I said before, nature never forgives. So however you plug in, uh, you're going to get something back. That's, you know, it's, it works like a machine. I mean, it's a machine. Hmm. So it's all set up. It's programmed. It's, you know, so if you put this in, you're going to get that back. Hmm. Krishna is the, the sanctioner of that. Kind of turned on the machine. So, in a sense, he's a little aloof as the witness. He's not responsible for what we do. I mean, he's responsible for manifesting us and giving us free will, but you can't blame him for that. <laughs> and, and, and you can't blame him for himself, what he does. So, there's a oneness there. In other words, the one aren't really separate or entirely different, or the many, excuse me, aren't really separate are different from the one. Hmm? They're different. The perception is, uh, they're small, I guess you could say that's a, a difference, but it's the one becoming many. So if I become many, then whatever, I can't be blamed for what the many, many do. They're me. <laughs> so it's me. Anyway, that's a metaphysical uh, point to, Think about when we think about whether God's to blame for the problems of the world. If there's only one person, who can you blame? <laughs> and there, in one sense, there's only one. Just Shakti, He's doing. He's manifesting the many. So it's a kind of a leela, also. Mm-hmm. Not the one you want to hang around in too long, I suppose. But uh, so it's an important position. Mm. He has, from our perspective, and he he represents like the full cognizance. Vishnu is never going to become bewildered. Mm. He doesn't. He, if you have the kind of praying that bewilders God, then you, you go to Krishna. Krishna can be bewildered by praying. Vishnu is always cognizant. The Paramatma is always. This is the most prominent feature then of the Sat Chidananda. The Sat is most prominent. In Krishna we find Ananda is most prominent. In Brahman we find Sat is most prominent. Does that help? But we say sometimes, like he's, he's sleeping mostly, like he worshipped in Brahmaloka. He mostly sleeps. You know, comes out, accepts a sacrifice, eats something, back to sleep. It also means, as more or less explained in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, that that kind of devotion that has that type of deity, corresponds with that type of deity, isn't the full face necessarily of divinity. Whereas Krishna is depicted as never, never sleeping. He's so animated by the bhakti. There's no, there's no time to sleep. So, 24-hour, you know, service is possible. Yeah. So, um, how should we prepare, or how should we receive? Krishna in our minds, in our hearts, tomorrow, in our... I'm thinking it's a little bit too short of the time to have all those sons of Devaki and Vasudev slain, all those seven ones... Tom Crowd, Loba Moha, Matsaya. In our real private world, what should, how should we receive Krishna tomorrow? Well, as well, you have to think, he's generous. In some way he's coming. Hmm. Actually, see, that's the fact. He's coming. So, and one thing is birth. Another thing is life in the womb, right? So, 
you can consider like that. It's, it's life in the womb still. He hasn't been born entirely in my life, but he's there. So you can feel him kicking, you know, <laughs> something like that. He's there. He hasn't quite fully come out yet. But as, because of his presence only is it possible for all these calm, crowed, calm, rohan, and so forth. Or you can say, it's in the form of the guru, representing Ram, Krishna's present there, and preparing the field, and and uh, and so birth's going to happen for sure. It's going to happen, but it's so you can be excited about that kind of idea. It's going to happen. I'm pregnant, but it's going to take a while. <laughs> it takes at least you know nine months or so. Nine lifetimes or something. So, something, something like that. The, 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 the Brahms, you know, bearer of the Haladar, the plow, preparing the field. So, gurus like that preparing the field. Diksha's planting the seed, and then you're pregnant now. So, so. Other elements will be dispersed, and as he grows, then the other elements will be dispersed more and more. There's no more room where there's light. There's no room for darkness. So, the light, the brighter the light grows, then more the darkness is removed, and then he comes with prem. He comes with prem. So you have to cultivate that prem. Yes. Question? No. Yes. Um, I had a question. I think I have some misconception on um, the uh, eternal spiritual Leela of Krishna versus, well, not spiritual, but, you know, versus the uh, one Krishna appears on earth. Um, I understand that in the Leela in the spiritual world that um, um, Krishna is, you know, always the same age. And my, I guess my misconception is that it would seem like there's a real, I mean, though it would seem like the one on Earth really has just way more than the one in the spiritual world, because you know they get to experience all these different ages of Krishna, these different you know ages, and from you know childhood to Kumar and all the other ones and everything, and they get to witness the killing of the demons and all these different leelas, whereas in the one in the spiritual world, you know, I mean obviously it's. Krishna Lila, but it's, um, he's always the same age. Just, so obviously I have some misconception there, and I wonder if... What's your misconception? Well, it just... The earthly Lila is more full. It seems like a lot more full. Well, it's, it, it is more full. It is the, that's the mystery, one of the great mysteries of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Krishna is eternally present in Mathura. Of course, Mathura is not a, limited by a geographical area. Boundary. It is for the sake of Leela. It's this far and it's that far, but it's actually not. There's no geography to it. It's like there's no need for the sun in Krishna Leela, but there's a sun there anyway, and there's a moon there. They're players in the drama. The place is self-luminous. Gita said there's no need for sun, moon, electricity there, light, fire, but. The other side of it, there is one also. Hmm. So, not in a dependent sense, but dependent for the sake of Leela, without the romantic moon, full moon, you know, in the Sarat season, the autumn season, the October moon, this is the time of the Rasa Leela, then how can you have that? So, the moon is a devotee, the sun is a devotee there. Hmm. So, um, so at any rate, that um, earthly manifest lila is the more full lila, hmm? and the, the the Goloka is a part of the Gokul. That's a fact. Hmm? Now you know the killing of the demons and so forth. Those aren't really the primary lilas. Those those aren't. In a sense, um, because those are the f- that's the acting of Vishnu in the context of the Leela. Krishna, Vishnu killed Putana and 
Krishna gave her Vatsalya Bhakti, parental love of God. That's Krishna. There's a difference between Krishna and Vishnu. So, um, but yeah, it's more full. I mean, um, we're talking about the birth leela of Krishna, so he's never born in, in, in Golok. So, how full can Mother Yashoda's experience be then? So, for the sake of giving her the full experience, it's sometimes said, then the leelas manifest in human society where there's birth and so forth. But at the same time, the content of each of these uh, leelas, the manifest leela and the unmanifest leela, is the same. The content is bhava. There's no bhava that's in one leela that's not in another leela. It's like sometimes people talk about Gornagar Bhav, but there's no, there's no, there's no, there's, there's never, that's not manifest in the Prakat Leela. So how can it be in the Uprakat Leela? Hmm? In the unmanifest. And that's a whole other um, argument. But anyway, the Bhavas are the same. So because the Bhavas are the same, they are the same. They are non different. But there may be facilities that augment the Bhava more in one place, in one realm than another. And human society facilitates that. Hmm? So, the sadhakas who want to attain vastu siddhi, ultimate perfection, they want to go to Golok. And the inhabitants of Golok, they want to come to Gokul. <laughs> so, and you will go to Gokul to perfect yourself. Then you go to the unmanifestly, but then you come back. Then you really, then you can really appreciate the Goku manifestly. It's a very complicated idea, but um, yeah, no, it's um, it's more full in a sense. It has more. The things are well. It, it, I want to say that the the leaders are played out. It's not that Mother Yashoda, Krishna's most perfect form, if you will, is the Kishore as an adolescent. Hmm? He has a Kumar. Uh, Pauganda and Kishore and Yovana. Kishore is the, is, is the perfect. All, but all of these are eternally manifest, and any devotee can experience any one of these ages in meditation. Hmm? So, if you can experience in meditation something, then it's there, but if you can experience it outside as well, kind of like it's even more extraordinary. So, something like that. It's not that Mother Yashoda cannot. Contemplate the childhood of leelas of Krishna that aren't particularly manifest. People are singing about them, chanting them there, making songs about them, and so forth. But they are absorbed in a particular kind of phase, which is kind of a an evolution of Krishna's qualities and form, just like a boy growing and he reaches adolescence, and you kind of want to stop him right there. That's you know really. Youth is attractive, and so on and so forth. He's not quite a man, not quite a boy, you know, both of which are problems, something like that. <laughs> not that adolescents aren't problems, but um, so <clears throat> talking about that unmanifest Lila is preoccupied with that. In that sense, you know, it can be looked at as, as the more, but. Each of the moments is eternally, it's like the sun, like I said, it's always noon somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the devotee can tune in anywhere, anytime, mm-hmm. in meditation, in their heart. So Mother Yashoda will contemplate the childhood leelas of Krishna. Mm-hmm. And in one sense, her contemplation of them to reaches a point where the leela has to manifest. In, in this world and play itself out more fully. So we can say it's a product of that meditation. Hmm. It's fueled by that that bhava, that that longing, that kind of preem. This is what makes it go round. So that help? Yeah. But the two are the same in essential content in bhava. So there's parakia here, there must be parakia there.
Another question? What's the time now? Question from the internet? What's that? Krishna states that he is time. Is our perception of time function of Krishna's illusory energy? Is what? Is our perception of time a function of Krishna's illusory energy? Well, I kind of think of time as the hand of God, something like that. It's taking everything away. This is uh, kind of the low end. I spoke about this the other day, the, of the name Hari, who takes everything away as time. Um, it's not a function of Krishna's illusory energy, in a sense, but it's the, the driving force. Hmm? The world is manifested, time is added, it drives it. Hmm. Um, and so sometimes that Kal Chakra that's considered to be like an abstract sense the hand of God who takes everything away and we're to take note of that and understand that, uh, that the false proprietorship that we're absorbed in is the whole whole problem and as we do that and we can move away from the general sense of Hari who's taking everything away to the Hari, which is the favorite name of Krishna in Vrindavan, who takes, who steals the hearts of the devotees. These are two ends of the spectrum. One Hari is just this kind of impersonal influence, time. Time I am, destroyer of all the worlds, he says in the Gita. Taking everything, he's destroying the world of my life. I'm, I'm building this whole thing, but it's, 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 it's dated. I mean, it's got a, this is my cell, and that time is my sentence. That's it. You know, that's, so, um, this is a very kind of, if you will, abstract and um, general conception of God, but it's, it's a good starting point for a lot of people who end up. Even we get absorbed in Gaudiya Vaishnavism with theoretically and so forth, we forget about this, how it, really understanding this aspect that nothing belongs to me is what the message of time is. You know, what time is it? <laughs> it's time to realize that nothing belongs to you. <laughs> so you're, you're late. <laughs> you're late. You've got a human life. It's late here. You know, let's get on with it. And so embracing that, you know, reality, the, 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 the dive in the godly factor, the, it's just such a powerful message to us. It just so, shows how little we're, we're listening. So we, we listen to a lot of philosophy, you know, we have to kind of embrace this. You listen to the high thing, then you embrace, like I said, if you come in the mall, you want to know where the penthouse suite is, you know, you, you can look on the map and it tells you it's here. But it also tells you you're here, and you have to have, have both these things together. So, you want to know where to go? I want to go to Goloka. I want to be, you know, intimately associated with Krishna. But I also want to know I'm here, and what I have to do here. So, in a very kind of lower sense, but it's high nonetheless. Anything in connection with with uh, acknowledging the reality of the God that is high. So. But it's the low end of the high, something like that. So embrace the fact that nothing belongs to me. This is to to understand time hmm, appropriately and respond to time as one should, which then makes time is on your side like that. So <laughs> this is the this is the message of the Bhagavatam. I'll tell it to you in poetry. Of the Bhagavatam, Ayur Harati Vaipum Sam Udyanastan Chayanaso. Tasyartaya Chano Nitya Uttama Sloka Vartaya. So it said, this Kalchak, the rising and the setting of the sun, is taking away every Ayur Harati. Ayur means life. So Harati means Harati, Hari comes from this, to take away. So uh, the rising and setting of the sun is taking away everyone's life. Ayur Harati Vaipum Sam Ujanastam Triyanaso Tasyarte Yachanonity, except, however, for one, Tasyarte Yachanonity Uttama Sloka Vartaya, whose always Vartaya means chanting, speaking about Uttama Sloka. Sloka means like verse, 
poetry. Uttam means the supreme poetry. It's a name for Krishna who is described by Uttam Shloka. That the, that the best kind of uh, poetry is, is he, that means the Bhagavatam is described in poetic language there. Hmm? So, person who is absorbed in that, then time is on their side. Hmm? This is the idea. That's what they were getting at. That <laughs> there's a there's a there's a there's a possibility that you, there, time is on your side. That's a fact. Hmm? But. We work against our own selves, unfortunately. That's how pathetic our condition is. Time is on our side. It's telling you the truth. And you want to stay, you want to fight it. Say, no. And so that's, that's the problem is ours. Time is saying nothing belongs to us. Hmm? Then that's not bad. Because it doesn't mean you have to give up anything. You just have to give up the false proprietorship. Hmm? you got some time. Just how to use it, that's all. Use it in relation to its source. Uh, the message isn't, nothing belongs to you, so sell everything or whatever, give it all. It, it, means, it means it belongs to someone. There is a center, there's a source. And so what we have is on loan for a purpose. And that purpose is in our interest. So how to use that. Um, in our in our interest is to use that to, in, in in the service of time, if you will, hmm? and time will then you know won't stand still. But there's another arrow of time, this you know, eternal time, something like that. Hmm? So you enter into friendly terms then with time. So some thoughts anyway about time. Hmm? Uttamas local art there. Become engaged in that, and time will will be on your side. Okay. You you will you will come to own the owner of everything. That that's that's what bhakti is about. Prem is defined as a sense of ownership. So we're saying nothing belongs to you, but you can own Krishna. Radha, she really owned Krishna last night. Did you see that? She just had him wrapped up like that. He tried to get in, and she said no, whatever. You know. So uh, this is the idea. Prem is defined by Rupa Goswami as a minus mine, Krishna's mine. So we are cultivating ownership of the owner of everything. What's what's to be lost then? Why try to own things when you can own the owner? Of everything. This is the high end of Hari then. How you can own him? Well, he's lost his heart. That's his problem. You've given it to his devotees, so give him ours. We'll give him ours. Then you, then you, you, if you give someone their heart back, then how much they feel indebted to you. This is how you own him. What else? Yes. So this idea of um, time and what you were saying about the map, right? Seeing this mm-hmm. penthouse that you're trying to get to. So what you've been saying about time and then this idea of having a goal. How does that compare to the idea of absorbing yourself in the present moment, which I don't know if it's really a part of this philosophy at all, but. I'm sure you're familiar with the idea that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the idea that the path is the goal. The journey is the destination. Right? Mm-hmm. That idea is... No, the idea that you're p- pointing out okay. is kind of the, the, to be in the present, that the journey is the destination. Mm-hmm. Be here now. Right? right? <laughs> So, yeah, no, we say the same thing. Hmm. Um, so, but, you know, it depends how you're going to talk about something. So, for the sake of understanding. The goal is to, yeah, pay attention. And if we pay attention, in a sense, to, so it's to be absorbed right now, then then the sun is going to be, when, he's, when it rises in the morning, you're, if you're paying attention, you're, you're going to say, hmm, this has got a message. Nature is talking to me. Hmm. It's saying, 
with the rising and the setting, the sun, everything is being taken away. I don't, nothing belongs. This is how the rishis, you see, they, they were present and nature talked to them. That's why they, they could evoke these poetic descriptions of nature as if nature was talking to them. And we think, that sounds kind of infantile. Nature doesn't talk and they're anthropomorphizing and so forth, but they're, they're hearing these, like, they're, they're really present and they, and they look at the sun and they would, and it would say, yeah, nothing belongs to you. Just see. And so they would conduct themselves according. They would listen to that. Hmm? So that's what we're talking about too, paying attention. Mahaprabhu was, the grass spoke to him. What happens if you step on grass? Does it resist? No, it just bends. So, but he, he stepped on the grass and the grass said to him, why aren't you humble like us? The tree said to him, why aren't you tolerant like us, like me? Hmm? So there's a way that these rishis, the seers, they, they animate the world, but do they really animate, or is it animated? Is it, is it giving these messages? They're certainly good messages. Hmm? So you know, the world's alive in that sense. So to be plugged in, really, to the present, then we should be getting these messages and then we change the way we conduct ourselves in the present. That's how we go somewhere. So to be here doesn't mean not to change. To be in the present moment doesn't mean not to change at the same time. So there's movement in being present. So we can talk about it as a goal. Hmm? You understand? In being present, there's the most movement. And that, and not, and, and, and not being present means that the mind is somewhere else, right? It's not in, it's not under control. The senses are taking us here, there, and everywhere. So whatever messages there are to be gathered, we're not able to take it, take advantage of them. So there's movement in being, it, it, Krishna's in every, God's in every atom. That's the teaching of the, of the, of the, uh, Nishing avatar, and Prahlad's lesson. God's in every atom, in the stone, and so forth. So do you have to go anywhere? No, but you have to be here. And if you learn lessons from nature, then like we have in Bhagavatam, the one fellow had said, I have 24 gurus. The bee taught me this, the tree taught, teaches me this, and so forth. And so he was uh, really observing and nature was speaking to him and telling him, to change, so the change is the, is the movement. You're not really going from here to there, in, in a sense. So what else? What's the time? All right. Yes. Uh, this morning you, were, you said this statement, bhakti gets bhakti, and I was thinking, does, can that relate to uh, what I was thinking about, which was that. Being here is is easier to chant, and because everyone's uh-huh. practice or sangha. Uh-huh. But then when I go home and I get back into school and all that, um, does bhakti begets bhakti mean that if I try to practice, that it'll get easier there too, or? What bhakti begets bhakti means is that nothing else can cause bhakti. So bhakti is independent, just like Krishna is independent. Nothing causes Krishna, nothing rules over Krishna. So bhakti is his own internal shakti. Nothing, nothing can cause bhakti. You can't, because I do this, I get bhakti. And because I do that, I get bhakti. Like in the, in the realm of karma, we do something, there's a result. Hmm? Bhakti is, is a tattva, it's eternally manifest. It's not something that is produced in time, in the context of time, a result in the context of time. So that's the overriding meaning. So uh, bhakti gives herself to us when we exercise, when we embrace bhakti, so to speak, by hearing and chanting, that's bhakti. Mm -hmm. That will give more bhakti. There's nothing else you can do. Now part of bhakti is... Sadhu Sangha, right? Mm-hmm. 
So if you have sadhusanga in your life, then we find bhakti increases. In fact, it's said in uh, Kaviraj Krishnadas's book, Chaitanya Charitamrita, that sadhusanga is the gives birth to bhakti. The janma of bhakti is sadhusanga. Hmm? So Vasudev associated with Devaki, she got bhakti. Hmm? Sometimes described like that. So naturally, in a situation like this with a sadhu sangha, then you find the bhaktis growing. And when you're at home and you don't have that association, there's not as much bhakti there. So perhaps so, the opportunity to grow in bhakti is limited. But then you have to take what bhakti you, you have and you get from a place like this and try to make your home like that. Hmm? To one extent or another is the idea. But it's natural that you come where there are other devotees and and the, the discussions are all about uh, Krishna and so forth that you will find that um, your bhakti is growing and the interest in participating and chanting is enhanced and so forth. So there's some connection with the way you were thinking about it and what it means, but in an overriding, larger sense, it means bhakti is independent, can't be caused. And so the prame, for example, that you want is not something that's the product of sadhana. It's eternally existing. It's existing, like if you want prame of a gopi, it's already existing. Hmm? And it can manifest in your heart hmm? by hearing and chanting and so forth. It can manifest there. But it's not produced, it's not a product. That's a theological point. So, all right, we'll stop there. Shri Krishna Janmashtami Mahatsavaki. Oh, Bhaktavarindaki. Oh, Pramananda.